Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host Zoe Blasky. We are still in lockdown in the UK so I hope you are being very kind to yourselves, taking it easy, surviving and remembering we are still collectively living through a global pandemic. If you want some support please do check out the Family Reset Plan at the website familyresetplan.co.uk. This week's episode is a special one. It is with Kasia Abaniak. So I was sat on a plane in the summer when we could do things like fly and I was flicking through Red magazine. I'm sure lots of you know that magazine and I wasn't paying much attention. And I landed on this article about how women can take back their power. And I don't know about you, but I feel like there's so much written on this and a lot of the content is the same and quite hackneyed and for me, not that helpful. But what I read in this article felt really different and it felt really fresh. So I instantly looked up, I was thinking, who is this woman? I looked up Kasia. I consumed so much of her content and her videos and I fell in love with her and her message. And I knew that I had to get her on the podcast because I wanted you to all hear her message too. So this episode is all about the societal conditioning that as women, we are unconsciously living, which Kasha calls the good girl. And she explains what that is in the episode. She says that actually, only recently have we gone from being property of men to now owning our own property and not really needing men in the way that we used to. But she says our thinking and our conditioning hasn't caught up, which is where we find ourselves stuck in this good girl trap the good girl auto responder she says where we find ourselves over helping saying yes when we mean no she did a study that showed that 80 to 90 percent of what women are doing is for others is invisible labor so she really talks us through in really practical ways how we can take back our power and i think it's a really important point taking back our power is not necessarily about leaving the home and all becoming CEOs. That's absolutely not what Kasia says. What she says is that taking our power back is really about what we choose to do, not what we unconsciously do because of our unconscious conditioning. And the trick to know which one you're in is how resentful you feel. We unpack all of that in the episode. So Kasia is the founder and CEO of the Academy which is a school that teaches women the foundations of power and influence. And Kasha's perspective, as I mentioned, is so unique because listen to this. Over the course of 20 years, she worked as a professional dominatrix. She also practiced Taoist alchemy in one of the oldest female-led monasteries in China. 
So she would be meditating for up to eight hours a day and then in the evening was going out as one of the most successful dominatrix in America. So she has this totally unique view on power and womanhood and presence and attention, which is what we talk about in the episode. I hope you're going to love it. I think you can hear in this episode the excitement in my voice at getting to connect with Kasha and share her wisdom with you. This really is what excites me discovering these people who have this incredible wisdom and insight for us and sharing it with you all. Please do let me know what you thought of Kasha. Let me know what you thought of the episode. I cannot wait for you to hear it. Here it is. Well, Kasha, I've been looking forward to talking to you for weeks. I was on a plane going on a family holiday in the summer and I read this article and I was flicking through Red Magazine and normally I'm just flicking through, flicking through, flicking through and I stopped in my tracks when I saw an article that you had written and I was just blown away by what you were saying, the truth of it and the power of your words, the energy just off the magazine was coming at me and I was like, I've got to find out who this woman is. And I've since been researching you and reading everything that I can about you. And I am so excited to bring your message to my audience. I cannot wait. In fact, we are going to get into so many juicy topics. And what I love most about your work is that you have such a unique view on it. And I just want to open, if you don't mind indulging me, with something that you wrote, which is right now, the world needs women who are self-directed, strong, and acting in their best interest. We need women who are using their life force to redefine what it means to be a woman today, leading from a place where they're full, not from a place where they're empty, exhausted, and not asking anyone for support. And then you say, throughout centuries, women have been trained to give away their power. And can we start there? (laughs) How have we been trained to give away our power? That is quite a string of sentences to unpack because there's a lot, lot of different things there. One of the things that we forget very often is that women's liberation, women's freedom, women's autonomy is actually quite new. In the course of a single lifetime, it may feel like forever. Like, are, you know, are we still here? Like, are we still fighting this battle? But if you really think about it, I mean, in the United States in 1974, a woman still needed. 1974. Some of your listeners were alive in 1974. 1974, a woman in Connecticut would still need her husband's permission to get a credit card at a bank. So we're talking about very, very, very recent changes that haven't occurred on the entire planet and haven't really occurred in the most forward progressive parts of the world in the way that we think they have. We are still very, 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 very far behind where we need to be for there to be actually something remotely resembling true harmonious balance or power for women in a real sense. So for millennia, we have a certain cultural pattern all across the globe, all across the globe. And five minutes ago, the awakening started to happen. So if you think about even our mothers, their mothers, if you think about in the very recent history, in very recent history, the best a woman could hope for. A woman was full of desire, ambition, had real dreams for the world, for herself, for her life. The best way she could fulfill that was really only to marry well, right? To be marriageable. What are the qualities that make a woman a good candidate 
in a patriarchal society for marriage, for the best marriage possible. So first, she's no trouble at all, right? She's not a lot of work. She's low maintenance. I'm low maintenance. I need nothing. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Right? So the husband-to-be can manage her. Easy to make happy. She's accommodating. She's resourceful. She can make dresses out of curtains and she can make shoes out of dresses and she can make soup out of shoes, right? She's not a burden. She's accommodating. She harmonizes. She responds to everybody's needs before they even ask. She never falls behind, but she also never outshines anyone. She responds in a timely fashion. She's upbeat and cheery, but not too loud. She's modest in appetite. She's modest in desire. She's modest in sexual temperament. She's not too much this. She's not too much that. And in the academy, in the school, we call this it's not even good woman conditioning. It's good girl conditioning. This is how you be a good girl. Some of those qualities, the ability to anticipate other people's needs, the ability to read a room, the knowledge of how to do that, all of that stuff. Caring for others is a superpower. These are phenomenal qualities. We need these qualities in the world. Where they become incredibly destructive is when they are not chosen, when they're automatic, when we find ourselves saying yes before we've had a chance to think, when we find ourselves doing all this invisible labor, mental, emotional, and physical for others without choosing to, without saying I'm pouring my heart into this. It's the prohibition against having your own desires, minimizing, negotiating against yourself before you ask for something. All of these things would make a woman great to marry in like 1898 and 1744, right? Wonderful. But right now, those qualities, those same qualities invisibly automatically adhered to are screwing up the world, are absolutely screwing up the world. So yes, there's sexism. Yes, there's huge problems. There's huge problems with how we regard motherhood, how we regard women, how the feminine is sometimes taken out of feminism, how there's no space, the hypermasculinity of the world in general. Yes, there are these obstacles against us, but the one thing we can actually immediately in ourselves start addressing is this good girl conditioning. So the first step is becoming aware of the things that we're doing because they've become conflated with our identity. Oh, I am just that kind of person that is always there for everyone. Even if it's not working, even if the person I'm advising is angry at me for it, even if, even if, even if I respond to crisis immediately, why don't I have time for my passion projects? Why don't I have time for all the things that I care about? When we start teaching the good girl reform curriculum at the academy, some women, when they start doing an invisible labor log, find that they spend up to 80% of their attention, time, and day doing things for other people that never ask, that never acknowledge, that never reciprocate without even knowing they do it. Like a meticulous log on a 15 minute by 15 minute basis of like where your thoughts went, whose problems were you trying to solve, whose feelings were you trying to untangle, what text message were you trying to interpret on someone else's behalf without asking directly, what does this mean? How much of the arranging, making things easier for others happens inside the life of the individual woman. Well, right now, we have a world that needs lots of bad girls. We need women who ruffle feathers, women who, who shake things up. And that's going to, you know, it's that autoresponder. Well, that's what I was about to say. I love your description of the good girl because I think it defines so many women and mothers that I personally know. And I love that you say 
good girls don't change the world. Of course they don't, because the definition of a good girl, as you say, is someone who's needless, who's wantless, who's a great candidate for marriage. That ancestry that we've inherited is not about changing the world. It's not about empowerment. It's so smart, the way that you say the good girl autoresponder. The reason I love the language that you use is because it feels to me so lacking in judgment and blame. What I hear when you talk about this is this is the generational conditioning that we've inherited that is so innate in us. We don't get a chance to think before we're stepping in, helping, saying yes. As you say, giving away up to 80%. It's incredible when I read that. And I believe it as well of our time to others. So how do we begin to break the autoresponder? If, as you say, it is based on millennia of conditionings, which will be sitting in our cells. So the first thing I want to respond to is what you commented on, on like the innocence of the autoresponder, how it's blameless. I want to extend that blamelessness a little bit further. This is also part of our conditioning. The first thing that we'll do when we notice one of these things is to self-attack. Oh, I did it again. It's all like, how did I fall into that trap? How do I get out of this now, right? Here's where innocence is one of the most empowering principles the human being can engage with. So this conditioning, these sometimes unspoken, invisible instructions come down from our ancestors. They no longer work for the world that we're in right now, but they're born out of love. Every generation designs itself to suit its times. So the truth is that even now in many parts of the world, if a woman wears a skirt that's too short and she's sexually attacked, she's the one to blame. So loving parents would say, watch yourself, watch yourself, watch yourself. They would police girls in a way they do not police boys. And the thing that happens is then we start learning how to police ourselves. It becomes a prison that doesn't need a prison guard. We self-attack. I'm so stupid. I can't believe I said that. I got to watch myself. I'm being too loud. I'm being too quiet. I should do this. I should do that. I'm too much of this. I'm too little of this. I'm too smart. I'm too stupid all at the same time. I'm too out there. I'm too timid all at the same time. This insane self-attack. And the reason I mention this in the vein of innocence is that the first step, and if this is the only step a woman takes towards breaking good girl conditioning, is to look at this self-attack as something that was born, again, out of love, out of care, out of a desire to protect. And that when we do it to ourselves, the first thing to know is it's not you. You are not attacking yourself. This is a universal phenomenon. I have not... (laughs) At the academy where we had a headquarters for a while, in this warehouse space that we made incredibly wild and luxurious, we had this giant sign on the wall We would run through all of the transcripts of all the classes to see if new exercises were coming out that were successful or unsuccessful. And we would use that space to decide what works, what doesn't work in the most rigorous scientific sense. Like, is this technique working? And the sign on the wall is, can a woman use this against herself? Can a woman use this against herself? And when we ran each exercise through the test, a woman who finally has this huge victory. She finally gets the loving velvet divorce in the house, or she finally gets the love of her life or the job, or she finally, you know what she says? 
She can very easily go, I'm so stupid. Why didn't I think of this earlier? Why did I need a class? Why did it take so long, right? Anything. So can a woman use this against herself? A woman could listen to your loving podcast and go, I am not the right kind of woman. I am not the right kind of mother. So the self-attack, if a woman can just create a tiny gap between herself and the voice that attacks, there is not a whole lot of psychoanalysis. This is what happened because of my mother, because of my father, because of... It's just the radio waves, the police yourself to be safe. If I beat myself enough, if I attack myself enough, I'll get it right. And that's not how human beings actually learn. That's not how it works. We learn what we feel. And when something feels good, we do it again. When we acknowledge that something feels right, we do it again. And that lack of acknowledgement of doing something right is key. So in general, in terms of good girl conditioning, the first thing is awareness. The second thing is selectively breaking rules. And the third thing is creating new agreements, creating new requests, creating new arrangements. So, you know, we have this big word patriarchy and it is the word father. It's not just women that are invisibly bound by the confinements of the patriarchy. Underneath that is the secret level of motherhood, how this world is not really equipped or designed for mothers. It's not designed for women. It's not designed for mothers. And I think about all of the religions of the world with their gods. We, oh yeah, we could replace the Virgin Mary with Artemis, a warrior goddess. Does that work? No. You know who I want to see be the archetype? I have this imaginary goddess and she is the woman who broke her own good girl conditioning as a mother and went to her boss and said, I'm just going to ask for something crazy. I'm going to be absolutely outrageous and out of my mind. I'm going to sit this boss down and I'm going to say, I like my job. I want to keep my job. I'm about to have a baby. I would like to be paid while I'm pregnant at the same salary. Then I would like to have the baby and I would like to spend some time with the baby while you continue to pay me that salary. It sounds crazy. The first time you say it that way, it sounds crazy. Some bold ass crazy woman went out there. She's my hero, heroine, goddess. She's the archetype. She's the archetype I want to pray to. She's the one who went, I'm going to be selfish. You asked about the center, filling your own cup. I'm going to ask for something for me. I want to have this experience and I want to get paid. And in the context of something called maternity leave not existing, it sounds outrageous. It sounds crazy. But because this figure, <laughs> this woman once asked for something crazy, now we have something called maternity leave that doesn't sound so crazy. And guess what? It didn't just benefit her. It didn't just benefit her child. It benefited all of society. Sometimes some of our most selfish sounding unreasonable desires are a gateway to massive social change. And for a woman who's in good girl condition and ignoring those desires that seem outrageous or frivolous or still like, what, am I lazy? I want both jobs and like not working and having baby or am I too much? Am I asking too much? Why should the boss have to pay me when I'm not at work? All that stuff, all that conditioning, right? Those desires sometimes are the gateway to the things that everybody needs. I have never thought of it like that. And that is so brilliant. And I love how core to breaking this conditioning is asking for help. Because I think sometimes this word empowerment can get confused with this ultra independence. 
And for me, when I'm in my ultra-independence warrior, I'm actually coming out of my wounded, traumatized self, actually. When I am really in my power is when I can sit my husband down, for example, like I did recently, and say, this is what is not working. This is what I need from you. I felt so powerful. And I love how core to your work is this asking practice. Tell us more about that because you say every time we zip it when we should ask, what we're likely to get is starting to feel resentful. And I think feeling resentful is the real epidemic that we're living with. Almost every mother I know, scratch under the surface a bit, she's seething in resentment towards everyone around her. And yet, that's because she's keeping quiet and not asking for help because without blame and love of our good girl conditioning. So I love your asking practice work. Can you share that? How do we ask for help? Let me take a few steps back and I'll get to it. Because the first thing you said is the independent woman. And I have something to say about that because when I start talking about the good girl, there's always a few women in the room who are like, I ain't no good girl. I'm not a good girl. I'm an independent woman. And I'm like, great, great, great. Let me ask you a few questions. Right? Because the good girl sometimes has a sneaky older sister that's a type of independent woman who will go for what she wants. She knows what she wants. She goes for it. But she does everything alone. She does everything by herself. She's living in the myth of the self-made man, the John Wayne, the pulling himself by his own bootstrap. She's mirroring that image. Guess what? There's no such thing as a self-made man. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And every man that I've heard of being a self-made man has not only a huge support structure that a woman doesn't have in order to foster his career, he probably has a wife, right? So the independent woman is, talk about rage. The independent woman is so good at getting things done. She tends to be absolutely excellent at everything, surrounded by people who need her, not feed her, and furious about it and tamping it down, tamping it down, tamping it down. Not getting to the beautiful, rich, alchemical transformation that's possible when you carry your rage into passion, clarity, and action, creating change. So is an easy trick to be like, independent women are angry. Yeah, because I don't know that there are very many women on this planet that don't feel resentful or angry. And there are stages to reach when it starts getting more and more suppressed. It can be active. And the more inactive the rage becomes, the more it starts manifesting in autoimmune illnesses, in a kind of tiredness all the time, in a resignation. And you go deeper and deeper down there, it ends in a sleepiness, lack of direction, low sex drive. That's the suppression of the fire. That's the suppression of the fire that is such a creative force when anger is well-held, well-considered, and well-handled. So asking. Asking is absolutely critical Because in order to create the community, support structures, the creative collaborations that are required for a woman to thrive in a world that is not designed for a woman to thrive, much less a mother, we have to learn to ask. Now, if anyone is feeling good girl conditioning in the realm of asking, it's going to manifest like this. I'm afraid of sounding bossy or I'm afraid of sounding needy, right? The ask that sounds needy is one side of a power dynamic, and I'll explain in a second. And the fear of sounding bossy is the other side. Or actually, 
having a legitimate inspired request, but coming across as bossy because there's that rage in there. There's a lack of connection. And then sounding needy, even though you're totally legitimate in your request, has a lot to do with not wanting to appear too dominant or too submissive. And here's the beauty. You have a request, right? And you allow yourself to feel the full feeling of what it would like to receive a yes to that request. Something we rarely do. And it's super important that it's like 100% of what we want to ask for, not 99, not 40. If you ask for 40% of what you want or 99% of what you want and somebody goes through the trouble of doing it, they're going to perform the action. And even though you say, thank you, they're not going to see you light up. It's like an orgasm, right? They're not going to see you light up. If it's 100% of what you want, it hits the spot. When it hits the spot, the reward they get is your radiance. They know they got it right. One of the things that I see happen in heterosexual relationships so often is women will downplay their request. They'll ask it. The men will go through the trouble of doing it. The woman won't light up. She'll be very grateful, very gracious, but there's a condescending quality and an incompleteness to it. The man will feel it and will start drifting away. I didn't get the reward. The reward was to actually make her happy. I think one of the biggest secrets about men in general is men so desperately want to succeed, not in the workplace, but at making a woman happy. And because of the good girl conditioning we have, because of the world we have, there are a lot of women who first won't voice 100% of what they say with the feeling of what it would be like to get a yes. They negotiate against themselves. They speak it. If they manage to speak it without a tremendous amount of resentment and feeling of bracing, the satisfaction of lighting a woman up is not present. And they always know. They always know. So you have men giving up and women getting angrier and men getting kind of dumber, more lost, don't know how to do it. I'm going to go succeed elsewhere. And then again, women being like, maybe I should be less demanding. Maybe I should be less angry. Maybe I should be less of this. Maybe I should control myself more. Maybe I just need to do, maybe I can't count on him. Maybe I should just do it all myself. Where the actual recipe is counterintuitive, but absolutely right. Where the bigger the request, the greater possibility that their role gets raised. And if we're willing for other people to be heroes and heroines and great in our lives, we're not afraid to share the biggest ask, the most inspired energy. Now, there are a lot of moving pieces to the techniques of how we teach women who are absolutely terrified of asking or don't bother or come across squeaking, screeching, squealing to get them to be absolutely shameless and joyful in outrageous requests, more than we can cover in a podcast. But that's the basic feel of it, right? Every unasked thing is a possible loss for the world at large. Those desires that come through you, like you don't have a say in what you want. You definitely don't have a say in what you need. You don't make it up to be difficult. You want a castle or a pony when you're a kid. You don't have a problem saying it. Somehow we get older and we start feeling responsible for our desires rather than responsible for how we are about them. Hey, I have this beautiful birth desire that's coming up. It may be impossible for anybody to do, but here's what it is. And I've seen some of my students use this to create some of the most unusual requests. A woman who wants to ask for help paying her rent instead asks 10 of her friends to invest in buying a giant communal mansion together. The inspired vision. And that's the other thing is that we're in extremely isolated times. And this is even pre-internet, right? Extremely isolated times. Everybody's living in this absurd reality. We're not even seeing how absurd it is that we all live like a nation of one. 
In my apartment building in New York City, there are 500 apartments and each one of those has a hammer. Each one of those has a stapler. Each one of those has cooking pots. Each one of those. And then we have to function that way. I am my own cook. I am my, my own travel agent. I am my own or my family units, therapist, this, that, shaman, storyteller, healer, all of it, all of it. It's crazy. It's really crazy. We don't see it as crazy. And the antidote to that is starting to create community through our inspired asks and requests in an absolutely outrageous and shameless way, (laughs) getting everybody to work together. And there are a lot of mothers listening to this podcast right now. Motherhood is no joke demanding. Like I can tell the moment a woman walks into my classroom, whether she has a child or not, motherhood changes women. There is profound about the development that happens because of the challenge of motherhood. That is a real thing. And there is no support for it. You might as well have some kind of condition, right? Some kind of like pre-existing condition you could check off on your insurance, some kind of disease. The support that human beings need, the connectivity that human beings need in general, men, women, mothers, children, to lower our suicide rates, our anxieties, our depressions, the isolated nature of our times is unnatural and strange and it's damaging. It's even more damaging to mothers who have this incredibly challenging task of essentially raising children by themselves. And these are things that are in our soundbite world are too complex to talk about because motherhood is seen as old fashioned and to say, let's support mothers. Let's have a support system around mothers and allow them to spend time with their children and help them raise their children. Sounds like Phyllis Schlafly in America being like, you're destroying the safety and security of mothers with your feminism. These human experience is far more nuanced than our current media landscape can handle, but not too nuanced for the actual human being. We all know these things. We feel these things. We feel the complexity of these things. We just don't hear sound bites that reflect those things. Yeah, you're so right. And I had Gabor Mate on the podcast. I'm sure you know his work. He said exactly the same thing that you're saying, how unnatural it is, how we expect mothers to raise children today. And he interestingly said the same thing. While we wait for the rest of society to wake up to this, unfortunately, it is down to us to do exactly what you're saying which is to ask for the help that we need I wanted to talk to you about your teachings about getting a no I think that's so powerful for people to hear because I think a massive fear that people have is getting a no and I know when some mums have asked me for help they'll preempt the no They'll say, could you help me, you know, pick Harry up a nursery? But if you can't do it, then there's like this but with this whole long string of preempting my no. And if you can't, then don't worry. And you haven't got time. And I know you're busy too. And but, 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 but. And I'm like, it's okay. If I can't do it, you can trust I'm going to say no with love. And if I can, I'm going to help you. What is this fear that we have about getting a no? Why are we all so petrified? I know I am. I'm scared of it of asking for something and someone just going, sorry, no. What is that fear about and how do we overcome it? Okay, so this also has a few parts because we still live in a world where this is slowly changing, but as girls are raised and as boys are raised, the social cue for belonging is simply attention when you pay attention to somebody. So when a boy gets it and when a girl gets it is really different. Again, this is changing, but the tendency has been for a very long time that when a boy 
has his attention out. Look what Billy did. Billy scored a goal. Billy got into a fight. Billy built a fort, right? When his attention is out, he gets the cue for social belonging. He gets attention. And for a girl, it's look how lovely Mary is. Look at her dress. Is Mary getting chubby? She gets attention, positive or negative, when her attention is on herself and brought to herself. What this does is this amplifies a woman's tendency to put her attention on herself when there is social tension, not out, but in. And this is really easily demonstrated if you do this test where you ask 10 women an uncomfortable question and you ask 10 men an uncomfortable question. Ask 10 women, they will tend to either answer the question, even though they don't want to, get very uncomfortable. And a man will have a tendency to say, why the hell are you asking me that? Put his attention straight back out. How this plays in a scenario when you're, having a reco- when you're asking for something and you're afraid of a no. The tendency is you'll put your attention on someone else in order to ask. And the moment you hear no, you won't hear that the no is to the request. You'll hear that the no is to you. The attention snaps right back into you. There's this instant bodily contraction at this instant pain response. I've been rejected, not my request. So one of the trainings that we do is put women in positions where they're constantly asking in a stream of requests and they're hearing no, they're hearing no, they're hearing no, but they're keeping their attention on the other person. This totally diminishes the sting of the no. Add another piece to it, which is after the person says no, ask, how did it make you feel that I asked you that? Meaning get curious about what's behind the no. And all of a sudden you're in the world of the other person. There's a connection there. And there's also one of the most incredible prizes, which is people don't say no to mess with you most of the time. They say no to protect something that they care about. In a small favor, it's harder to see that. In a big ask, it's easier. So if I have a huge request of you and you say no, I keep my attention on you and stay curious. Find out what it is that that no is there to protect and honor it. What I'm finding is something so key about you something important enough for you to protect, something you care about, a desire of yours, that is actually the most powerful gateway to influence. There's a version of this that's taught in the most advanced sales techniques right now. That's without feeling. I'm talking about with real feeling. Find out where they are. Find out what their thing is. All of a sudden, a no becomes a more powerful response than a yes. A yes doesn't give you any information. A no gives you exactly the heat of what they care about, what they're most afraid of, what they want to protect. Once you have them located, you know what they want, you know their desire, you know, and you can just honor it with just a simple approval. Very often the no itself starts to fall away by itself. So even if they can't say, pick up your kid at that moment, they can start talking to you about setting up a system where everybody's kids get picked up when necessary. A bigger vision has a chance to emerge. That's not present in the world of the yes. Also, there's this other side to it, which is saying no is quite difficult for many, many people. Can you imagine what it feels like if I ask you for something you can't do, you say no, and I go from looking at you, actually seeing you as a human being, to all of the sudden exhibiting hurt, pain, and disconnection. What you feel is that you've hurt me with your no. You've hurt me with your truth. That first level is just a simple no. There's a whole world behind that no. How would you feel if I instead started to inquire, not saying, why not? Why can't you do this for me? But checking in and getting curious about what is it 
that you might need. I don't have to do it. I don't have to fulfill that need. But what is it that exists in your world that you care to protect with that? No. You'd feel so much better. You'd feel safer telling me the truth. You'd feel safer telling me no. You would feel a whole lot safer saying, maybe let's talk about it. You'd feel definitely a lot better about saying yes, because you got to exist as a real human being in my universe, not just the person who crushed me by saying no and making me feel like I don't have a right to ask. You know what's so fascinating? So much. My brain's like ping, 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 firing off things as you're talking. One thing that's fascinating to me is that children naturally are curious about the no's. If you say no to a child, I said no to my daughter tonight. Why? What if we did this? So rare that you'll say no to a child and they'll go, okay. So this is like really conditioned because I think children naturally do what you're talking about. And children are brilliant at the other side of it, saying no. Can you put your shoes on? No. What's coming up for me is how conditioned we are to be afraid of getting a no and of saying no boundaries I think almost maybe saying no is more of a fear I think for mothers than hearing the no what's your view well I'd be willing to wager that many of the women listening right now actually don't get a lot of no's they get a lot of fake yeses or they don't even ask far enough in order to get an actual no like hearing the word no is a fear that doesn't actually show up very much again We want women to hear no and get incredibly curious and excited about hearing no. In terms of saying no, if you're better at hearing no, it's easier to say no. But there's another thing. There's another option besides saying no. This is another thing about the default attention of women being inward. When somebody asks you for something, you feel, asks you for something or asks you for information, asks you a totally inappropriate question, like, Do you have sex when you're pregnant? No basis, no right in asking or asks you for a simple favor, right? We feel the attention goes straight to us. We feel to present an answer, an explanation, a justification. Yeah, I hear this a lot with mothers-in-law. Why are you putting the baby down? Why are you sleeping with the baby? Why are you still breastfeeding? Right, and whether it's asking for a favor or an appropriate question, any attention coming to you, if you struggle saying no, That's not a bad thing. There are ways to work with that. And I'd say the first thing is to take the attention off yourself. So the first thing is you really, really, really want to create a gap between somebody's question and your automatic yes. That's for sure. Some women can summon the wherewithal to say, can you give me a second? Can you give me a moment? Can I get back to you on that? Sometimes that's not possible. It's already too much thinking to an automatic response. The next easiest thing to do down the scale is to ask a question. So somebody asks you for a favor, you ask them when they need it, by why they need it, why they need it from you. It doesn't have to be harsh or inquisitive or damning. It can just be curious. It just buys you some time and gives you a chance to take yourself off the hot seat so you can have them explain themselves a little, justify them. So this can be totally loving. In an emergency, if you can't even ask a question about the question, you can just repeat the question as a statement. Because that little gap, it sounds silly, but that millisecond gap between you and your automatic yes, the forceful no doesn't have to be the counter to the automatic yes. It can be, wait, did you just ask me to pick up your kids from school? Or did you just ask me if I'm still breastfeeding? I think you just asked me, is that right? Like just that restating what they said, again, doesn't have to be harsh. Just be like, oh, you need something. Is that right? Can give you enough time to get off that automatic, I'm on the hot seat. I need to come up with an answer right away. 
something simple. Somebody asks you for your phone number, wants to have coffee with you, but it's a stranger and you don't know if you want to have coffee with them. Maybe you think they're really cute. Maybe you like them, but you don't know. This is coming out of nowhere. So instead of lying with a fake phone number or saying that you're married or telling the truth that you're unavailable, you can say, what made you decide to ask me that? Because automatically you're putting the attention on them. What kind of coffee date do you imagine? Wow, that sounds great. Thank you. I happen to be married. Thank you for adoring me from the distance. Have a beautiful day, right? There's so many options that become available when we just create enough of a gap. What I love about this is there's so much written about empowerment and power. And why I'm so obsessed with your teaching and with you is because you teach these things in micro ways They're so in the moment and you can see, I can see exactly, I'm thinking of situations in my head where I'm asked a question and that automatic programming, boom, and I can see how saying, really interesting you asked me that, just gives you that time. And as you say, the attention goes out. Can you talk about the freeze? Because that's the other thing that can happen, particularly if a question feels personal (laughs) to a mother, like, oh, you're still breastfeeding or, oh, you're still co-sleeping or, oh, you're homeschooling or, oh, you're vaccinating or you're not, you know, the more personal the question I find, the more the propensity is that I'm going to freeze and just lose all my power, give all my power away. (laughs) Yeah. I'm having so many sparks of inspiration because you keep doing this thing where you say these amazing things that connect to other things. And then you ask me a question and I want to go, wait, let me take that a few steps back. (laughs) How do you Um, do that? I put too many things in one question. uh, I do too. I think we're just having a really good time. (laughs) You brought up something about in the moment and where the attention is in the moment that speaks to the thing I've been searching for as an antidote for all these big empty phrases that have been driving me crazy for my entire adult life as a woman. Stand in your power. Okay, how? What does that mean? Use your voice. Really grateful to Sheryl Sandberg for writing her book, but lean in. Like, what do I do if I can't? And this brings us to the freeze because there are moments where some things happen and we choose not to speak. Some things happen and we have a moment and we go, am I going to call that out? something inappropriate, uncomfortable, and we make a choice. That's one thing. When we talk about the freeze, we're talking about absolutely choiceless silence. The freeze is that moment where somebody's sexually harassing you, somebody's being extremely inappropriate, it's a professional situation, it's a personal situation, it doesn't matter, but somebody has created a sense of violation in you where you're on the spot. And every cell in your being wants to speak. It's not choosing silence. It's not a moment where you're like, I'm going to sit this one out. And your mouth is opening and closing like a goldfish. No sound is coming out. There's a thousand thoughts rolling around in your head. The freeze sounds very inactive. It's actually only inactive on the outside. It's super active on the inside. And breaking that freeze, especially in those high stake situations where it can be a career, it can set the course of your life in many ways. It's, you know, child support hearing. It can be In a small situation, right? Like somebody asks you if you're vaccinating your children. It doesn't matter if it's high stakes or low stakes. Because of this default submissive attention, when we get attention on us that's uncomfortable, we will double down inwards and get trapped in that inward undertow of attention, making us frozen and silent, unable to speak, defend ourselves, call something out, is one of the subtle power dynamic mechanics that makes us all feel crazy. It makes us all feel crazy because we can freeze in an elevator when a neighbor asks us if we're single and we can freeze when our life is on the line or freeze when our work is on the line. 
It's like, how do you know if you can trust yourself to show up if there are these moments where you freeze? So this topic of the freeze is super, super, super important to me. And especially in like the Me Too era, it became really important for me to figure out really simple techniques to get women just to break the freeze. Just so there'd be real time learning, you know, even about like the behavior of men, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. You can give them a whole bunch of rules, but if you have a real human being reacting in real time, silence as consent is just something that happens, whether it's right or wrong, it's just something that happens. So what I talked about just a few minutes ago about getting yourself off the hot seat by flipping the attention is exactly how you break the freeze. So we do it most powerfully with a question. So no matter what you're asked, if you can turn your attention on the other person and ask them a question, it sounds inane. The power is that when you ask someone else a question, their attention also goes inward to find the answer, even if for a millisecond. So you feel that tension break and you regain your ability and your agency to like get the hell out of the room or to like formulate your case or to make a request, whatever it is. So, you know, somebody can be like, do you really want this job? Do you want to prove to me how much you want this job? You can say, where did you get that tie? And already it's worked. They go, "Uh uh-huh, what? This takes a little practice because sometimes when women start what we call turning the question, (laughs) the first ones are quite harsh. (laughs) So we practice. So why aren't you vaccinating or why are you vaccinating your children? Why do you want to know? Are you taking a poll? Are you nosy? Do you think there's something wrong with that? What's your take on vaccination? It can be a little hostile, but with a little practice, we can start calibrating. You're like, you seem really concerned about the welfare of my children. Is that true? That's really kind of you. What are your thoughts on vaccinations? And all of a sudden, you're not in that undertow of the freeze that is the most uncomfortable. It's more uncomfortable than any uncomfortable question anyone can ask you. And that's the essential part of breaking good girl conditioning. It's like knowing how to flip the attention from yourself to someone else and from someone else back to yourself, that fluidity. Because in power dynamics, the person who has their attention out is dominant and the person receiving it is submissive. And in the best interactions, people are constantly switching. And I love how you say it's not even gender specific. It's just attention. Where is the attention? How can we use that in parenting? There are so many things I teach where I go, well, with parenting, there's kind of an exception. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking about attention and power dynamics of my (laughs) five-year-old. Well, your dominant attention is absolutely critical to their development. And dominant attention, meaning being able to get curious about their experience, Mm -hmm. telling them what to do, but locating them, finding out what's this about and moving them from one place to the next. Mothers their dominant attention is so overused that they'll snap back into kind of a toxic submissive state of attention instead of a positive one. So every human being needs to have a balance between attention out and attention in. And the beautiful part of attention out is when you can stay curious about the other person and be leading them where you want them to go. The toxic part is when you're not really paying attention to them and forcing them to go where you want them to go. I see. In the surrendered submissive state of attention, The toxic part is when you're not connected to what you want, you're just present to everyone else's attack. So your attention isn't fully in. It's half on the circumstances that are offending you or hurting you, right? That's where you get victimhood. So if a woman spends so much time with her attention out and doesn't have enough time with her attention in, in a pleasurable, nourishing way, she'll be the toxic submissive. And the toxic submissive is the one that's crying, screaming, freaking out and exhibiting pain. 
without giving anybody instruction, meaning not moving to the fully attention out space, but also not moving fully in into what's needed and asking for what's wanted that would create that nourishing, pleasurable experience. Most mothers I know are attention out all the time. <laughs> you talk about this in your good girl description as well, where you're like, sometimes she loses it. Yep. And I get what you mean. I'm nice. I'm fine. It's all good. It's all good. I got it. I got it. I got it. What? And it, it's a little, it, that in terms of one of the things about my personal education, my path is that being a dominatrix and a nun in the martial arts and Taoist sense mean that I am fanatic about attention and where attention goes. So the energetic structure of a good girl who freaks out and explodes is the same as kind of a suicide bomber. She's blowing herself up and everybody else around her, right? She's not precisely lasering and attacking someone or calling them out. She's exploding herself in all directions. So the natural animal body response of other people is to back away, which will infuriate her even more. So like, I've had it. And then you slowly start seeing the people who you want to fix it, who you are blaming going, ooh, my proximity to this person is making her implode herself and me. I better back away. And it's just another thing of like, great, more men or more people that are just failing me, leaving me. Like I'm all alone in this. And it becomes a vicious cycle. It's the remedy of making powerful and outrageous requests cannot be overstated in this context. It's so insightful what you talk about. Because what I'm hearing is around connection. It's just a word that keeps coming up for me as you're talking, particularly as the good girl rages, shouty mum, we kind of call it in mothering stuff, you know, when you're just like, well, you just, because in that moment you've broken the connection. And from that place, in my experience, there's zero compliance. There's nothing going on <laughs> around me. I yeah. then have to leave the room, center myself, do something else to come back to get the connection because the connection's gone. And with yeah. children, like they're energetic beings. The moment the connection breaks the behavior, then they start being acting out. Well, the acting out, as I see it, understand it, is just a lack of connection. That freak out, that explosion has a powerful context. There is an absolutely precious and holy use for that. And it's called closing the doors, putting the music on, private time, thrashing, screaming, crying, and then writing vengeful lists of everything that's wrong. And then in the next stage, looking at them and seeing what the need and the desire is, and then getting to the vision and then getting up and being like, I'm going to go get those things for myself so that I'm the best center of the universe, the empress of my domain and my cup runneth over. <laughs> that's also necessary. It's just that when it doesn't happen intentionally, it will happen unintentionally. Mm. What about your own mother? What modeling did you get around this stuff? I could speak for hours just about my relationship to my mother and the mother-daughter relationship in general is fascinating, especially as the world changes. I went through many phases as I think many people do as they go through many stages of growing up in adulthood where, you know, they'll hate one parent, they'll love the other. No, they'll love the absent dad, even though he left and hate the mother who's always there, but suffering, or they'll like love the mother and feel sorry for her and hate the father, whatever. I would definitely went through phases. I have a really wonderful relationship with both my parents now, but my mother is still a jazz singer, a successful one. And when I was growing up, both of my parents toured a lot. And what I got from that is 
now I see that I could have used some mothering in times where I didn't get it, even though my mother did everything she could. I mean, we're talking about a different decade, a different time. One of the strongest messages I got, though, is that my dreams are important. To be able to see her on stage, knowing that she was leaving to do her thing. And then when my parents split up and she was a single mother jazz singer in New York City and the stakes were raised, how she fought for us and how she fought for her career was incredibly inspiring. And also where the world let her down and where she let me and my sister down as a result of the world letting her down is one of the reasons I started the school. I saw her overload. I saw her capacity for denial when it came to my father's drinking, for example. I saw how she was too kind to him, didn't put him in his place, which didn't serve him. He wasn't well held, but she also had no one. You know, I saw those things. And the voice in me that keeps, you know, wanting to yell and scream and speak and reach every person I can is also with love to my mother, the momentum that got created when she wouldn't listen to me. So in a lot of ways, you know, I'm both in awe of my absolutely killer, badass mom who is now in her 80s and like back in her country on a TV show, being the judge in the voice of Poland and is just like a legendary figure. And also I am in absolute shock and awe when I really, really think about it her shortcomings, in quotes, as a mom, how much they were societally driven and how much my mission in the world right now has to do with that, has to do with creating a world where motherhood is easier and community is easier and being a woman in whatever sense, right? Gender fluidity, yes, but being a feminine woman, wanting to be supported, wanting to be contributed to, worshipped, adored, like all of those things are not only okay, but available. You don't have to prove yourself by succeeding in any particular way. You can, and you get support in whichever way you want to go. But this like destruction of the feminine and the destruction of motherhood, like we literally have a world that worships fatherhood, patriarchy, religion. It's all about fatherhood. And without a lack of balance between motherhood and fatherhood, fatherhood suffers. Masculinity suffers. Men being divorced from their own internal compass of feeling is a disaster. We ask them to shut down their feelings and go to war and die for us. And now we're paying the price. You know, want them to be sensitive. Yeah, okay, whatever. And also to be able to kill the bear. Okay, whatever. I could go on and on and on about this, but I love my mom. (laughs) Both my mom, my father, like they're awesome now. My dad is a Polish feminist now. There's so much that I love and and resonates with my own story in so many ways, but I love how you hold the duality. I think that's part of maturation, is being able to see our parents as just fundamentally flawed humans like the rest of us. I think when we can start seeing our parents for who they are and taking the amazing bits and and taking the not-so-amazing bits and healing without judgment, you know, one of the most powerful things that I did was... I started to ask my nan, my maternal grandmother, about her childhood, about my mum's childhood, about what was going on. And the compassion all poured into me. I was like, God, I understand why she is who she is. And any judgment or anger that I felt about, you know, wrongs, quote unquote, just fell away. Because I was like, actually, this is a phenomenal woman, given the traumas that came down the female line. It's just phenomenal that she was able to get us to school every day, which she did. We were impeccable. 
and we were fed and you know it's unbelievable and I think there's so much power in that which is you're describing as seeing the humanity in our parents healing what we need to heal but just being able to see the humanity in them I would stretch it even further what you're talking about is actually I think the elixir for saving the world because if you stretch it beyond parents the ability to hold two mutually exclusive realities at the same time is the sign of spiritual maturity that human beings need right now. When you can look at a perpetrator and a victim and you can see the humanity in the perpetrator without neglecting to hold them to account for what they did, you actually start solving the problem. You go, what creates that predator? What system do we live in, right? So it's like, this is where compassion doesn't become a place where your power diminishes. It's that next step where if you take that next step, it's a place where your compassion actually increases your power mm, to, so to create right. real world solutions. Well, you don't need to understand much about trauma to be able to see people doing horrific things in the world. And my first question is always often to myself, what happened to them? Yes. What's happened to them that has made them act that way? Because I understand my own traumas and how that makes me act out. So I think, God, what must have happened to them? And I think, like you say, that gets exciting. If God, if we could create a mass of people thinking like that, because it unlocks the judgment. I think the whole judicial system, everything would change, right? Everything would change. Do you realize you're talking about a world run by the principle of motherhood, whether it's a mother or a man or a woman without a child? We're talking about the principle of motherhood. It's practical, right? Let's solve the problem. It sees all sides. Like you can say what happened to them, probably because you're a mother. Yes. When you look at a child and they're doing something absolutely evil, you don't go, they're a bad person. We have to kill them. You go, what happened? It's absolutely brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. If we had, you know, a world that was worshiping the holy motherhood as a principle in government, religion, politics, social organization, (laughs) everything would change. It's so powerful. You know what I wish? I'm going to ask you what you wish in a minute. But what I wish is that every mother could see the holy in the mother, could see how profound mothering is, how profoundly hard and profoundly important and beautiful. It would change everything, as you say. I am going to ask you what you wish now. So if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world what would that one gift be and why? Really similar to what you said. I don't think there's a mother on the planet that doesn't recognize that mothering is a creative process. It's an ongoing exploration. So my wish is that each mother sees her creative process, the development of her own motherhood, including what's necessary, whether it's community, whether it's being worshipped, adored, whether it's support, help, or whether it's structural need, but the development of her own motherhood as a creative process is exactly what the entire world needs, that every single woman developing her own motherhood is actually working out the formula for saving the planet. Wow. It's mind-blowing to me. I love you so deeply, and I hope that you realize, I am sure you do, how special your energy is, and your messages. And my deep wish is that everyone I know is going to know about you. I mean, everyone who listens to this podcast. And I also want to tell people, because I'm going to be doing this, that if they pre or you order your book, they can come on to the, I'm going to get this wrong. So you're going to have to correct me because I haven't got it in front of me, (laughs) but they can come on the good girl reform school. Is that right? 
this is basically we we decided to do something kind of crazy. We're basically giving like seven and a half million dollars worth of teaching away, almost for free. This world's gone nuts, and we want to empower women quickly. If you pre-order the book Unbound: A Woman's Guide to Power, you get a free seat and a month-long intensive that starts in a few weeks. I'm yeah. already there. I'm signed up. <laughs> A month-long intensive called Good Girl Reform School, which is specifically about breaking good girl conditioning together, which makes it so much more fun. (laughs) I can't wait. Like, it's in my diary. Hell, those times. Like, I am there. (laughs) So tell me where people go to get on and join me and hopefully thousands of others on the Good Girl Reform School. It's on our website, weteachpower.com. All of the information for Good Girl Reform School will be there, as well as a lot of other resources for women to get some of this learning. That's the other thing I wanted to mention. As part of prep for this podcast, I did your four free video series, which were incredible. So if for any reason you don't want to pre-order the book, I cannot think why you wouldn't, but if you didn't want to pre-order the book, Kasha also has these incredible, totally free for training videos, which are really generous in their time and how much you give. And that's all free. So that's on your website. I'll send links to everyone. I'm also going to be buying your book. It's not out till March, but every single woman that I've ever met in my life is going to get a copy of your book (laughs) from me. I sometimes do that. I like to think, you know, how Oprah does that with her friends. That's the way that I'm like a little bit like Oprah. (laughs) Books that I love, I just buy for everyone and everyone's going to get a copy because your message is so unique. And the way I just keep saying it, but the way that you break down these huge, unobtainable concepts into moments is so powerful I think your work is incredibly special and I'm so grateful for your time. I know what your diary is like. My audience, I'm going to thank them in advance because I know they're already going to be thanking me for bringing your message to them. So deep gratitude. Thank you so much. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time. 
Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.